Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 12th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 1 to 26. When some of the elders of Israel come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord, the Lord instructs his prophet to recite the history of their rebellion against him from their time in Egypt through the wilderness wanderings. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's great to get to be with you again. Pastor Ill, Ezekiel gives us the context this morning at the beginning of chapter 20. He says that this happens in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month. Tell us a little bit about that context, why that's a significant date in particular right here. So this ends up being important because it ends up being exactly five years to the day before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Some scholars have dated this that, according to our calendar, it would have been August 14th in the year 591 BC. But in the Hebrew calendar, it falls on the on the same day that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed five years later in 587. And so that's really the significant thing. God is once again calling his people to repent before terrible things happen to them. As we're going to see throughout this chapter, God is calling his God has a history of calling his people to repent, threatening to pour out his wrath. But he's not making empty promises. At one point, he's going to say, I will pour out my wrath on you, and he will do it. And he does it when the temple is destroyed in 587. And this is one more call to repentance for God's people, that they would hear the Lord their God, turn from their sinfulness and from their idolatry, and believe in him. But because we recognize that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, we recognize the people did not turn from their idolatry. In terms of this particular warning that's given here, and what we've got today is the first part of this. Tomorrow's text will go together with this. It's one long sermon that we've split into two for our purposes here on Sharper Iron. In terms of the the structure of what we're going to see today and the way that this sermon that Ezekiel preaches to these elders is laid out. What's the what's the structure? How are we going to see him as he lays out this history of the people of Israel? How is he going to do it in a rhetorical way? So the first four verses are all about uh, the kind of setting the context. What's the date? The elders come before Ezekiel because they want to hear from God, and God has a reaction to that idea, and then instructs this sermon to be preached. The sermon comes in parts where God takes up first the sinfulness of his people during the, uh, while they were in Egypt, their sinfulness during the Exodus and when they received his laws and commandments at Mount Sinai. Then after the people refused to enter the promised land, 
there's a, an address about that second generation who is wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That's when our text for today stops, but then tomorrow it will pick up on life in the land that God had brought them into and God's charges against them closer to the present. The other thing that's going on in this text that's helpful to say, I think, is there's a, in each of these sections, there's a a similar flow. And so you'll hear about God saying, this is what I did. Then he will say, my children rebelled and profaned my Sabbaths. And then I was going to pour out my wrath on them, but I didn't because of my name. And so the pattern is the same, even though the specifics are different. With that in mind, let's dig into the text. Again, we are in Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers. I think we'll we'll pause there, Pastor Ill. That's the introduction and maybe the first part of the sermon, the, the summary. We're going to hear about the abominations of the fathers here. Before we jump into what Ezekiel actually preaches, Let's talk about these elders. Certain elders of the Israel came to inquire of the Lord. But what, what does that mean, that they're coming to inquire of the Lord? What do they want from Ezekiel? They want to hear what God has to say to them. You might guess that there's something specific that they want to hear, but Ezekiel isn't clear in telling us what that is. But there is kind of this really interesting irony. Ezekiel is the priest, the one who stands between God and God's people. Ezekiel is the one who has been, for 19 chapters before this, telling the people what the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, and they haven't been listening. But now, these elders decide they want to hear what the Lord says, and so they come to inquire of the Lord, wanting to almost take that priestly position between God and his people, because now they're interested as long as they can do it according to their rules. They want to be in that priestly place where Ezekiel is, because they want to hear from the Lord on their terms, not on the Lord's terms and not on Ezekiel's terms. So they want to call the shots. This points out the inclination of God's people toward idolatry, even as they want to treat the Lord as an idol, trying to say, see, we're going to come to you when we're good and ready to get our answer, and and then we'll listen. So we're going to listen according to our rules, but you stop trying to break in and tell us how it's going to be on your rules and on your timeline. And so they end up, I guess you could say, idolizing God or trying to put God in a box who answers them the way they want to be answered. Right. We, we see this, I think, elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel. The elders, or at least some of them, have come to Ezekiel in previous chapters. Chapter 14 stands out, and it's not identified right there in the text from the elders or from Ezekiel why they are there. But when the Lord speaks to Ezekiel, you can see that he knows why they're there, 
and they are not there for sincere, faithful reasons, but for their own even idolatrous reasons, as, as he pointed out in chapter 14. And we're going to see here again, even though that's going to come up, their own situation is going to come up a little bit more in tomorrow's text. But that that is what's going on. How does How does this apply to us today, that sort of attitude? How might that come up in our hearts still? Christians today are certainly tempted to try to come to God on our own terms and to put God in our own box, especially today, the idea that, well, if I have my Bible, if I read my Bible and pray, why do I need to go to church? Or I can worship God wherever I want to. Or, Pastor, who do you think you are to tell me that I ought to go to church? All of those things come around and show that we too try to make up our own rules and show where we ourselves call the shots. And we're, we're trying to take that position between God and ourselves. But that position is ultimately fulfilled not by Ezekiel, but by our Lord Jesus. And it's Jesus who calls us to believe in him. And apart from that, we have nothing And why in the world would we want to separate ourselves from where the Lord gives his gifts of the absolution, of baptism, of the Lord's Supper, of preaching, and where we get to respond with prayer and praise? Hmm. That connection to Jesus, I think, is really important in these first four verses because, because of the way the Lord responds, you know, I will not be inquired of by you. He, he tells these elders, you don't, you don't get to come and talk to me. You don't get to come and ask me questions. You don't get to come and pray to me, which is a rather terrifying thought. But that's the reality apart from Christ. It's only in Christ that we can inquire of God, that we can pray to him. And so I, I do think that that connection to Christ, this, this text, would call us to repentance for any way in which we inquire of God. Say, to, to think about the way Jesus talks about, apart from his name, apart from who he is, whenever we try to inquire of God apart from that, we run the risk of, of earning this same rebuke that the elders get here. And we'll see this returning emphasis on God's name throughout each of these portions of the charges that God brings against the people of Israel. When he says, uh, I was I was going to pour out my wrath against you, but for the sake of my name, I didn't. And so even when we get uh, to the fullness of the fall of Jerusalem and the exile, still God hasn't removed his name from his people because he sent his son saying, pray in my name, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and the disciples were baptizing in the name of Jesus, which is the name of God. And even today we recognize we, the church, live in the name of God, and God hasn't poured out the fullness of his wrath upon us because of his name, because our Lord Jesus has taken that suffering on our behalf and we live in his mercy, not experiencing the fullness of God's anger. Yeah, that, that phrase, as you said, that what God does for the sake of his own name is going to be very important as our, our text goes on and as Ezekiel jumps into this sermon. Is there anything more on the introduction before we move into the, the text of his sermon this morning, Pastor Hill? I don't think so. I think we're ready to go. All right. So the, again, the end of verse four, we'll pick up there. Let them know the abominations of their fathers, and now in verse five, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, 
I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt, into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That takes us through verse 9 of the text. This is the first section of Ezekiel's sermon where he recites the history of God's people in Egypt. That's where Ezekiel starts this history of the people of Israel. And so, Pastor Elf, if I remember correctly, each section of this sermon, as you laid it out, is going to start with what the Lord did for his people. So how does this section start in that way? So it starts with this idea that the Lord swore and depicted them, chose them. He, you could even say he elected them. He picked them out of all of the nations on the earth. This leads to the question, why did God choose Israel and not Egypt? Or why not any of the other nations in that land or nations anywhere else on earth? I don't know. The short answer is God isn't responsible to answer to me or to the elders or to anybody else. God chose his people. And so he chose the offspring of the house of Jacob, and he made himself known, even sending Moses with his name, Yahweh, so that he would go. And when the people said, you said God talked to you in a burning bush, well, who talked to you? And Moses was to say, I am who I am, sent me to you, Yahweh. And God gives them his name so that he is made known to them. And he gives them this promise that he is going to lead them out of their slavery in Egypt up to the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. Uh, But then he said, as he was getting ready to lead them out, all of the, the detestable things or the abominations that you look at, um, get rid of them. Stop paying attention to the idols and the gods of Egypt. And part of the problem is the people of Israel had gotten really good at being inclusive and pluralistic and diverse to the point, not just where, to the point where they had accepted the gods of the Egyptians. And God said, no, no more of this. Knock that off. Instead, focus on me and me only, calling to mind even the words of Jesus when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, as he says in John chapter 14. And so the Lord, the God of the people of Israel says, I am the only God. Stop messing around with these, with these other gods. But God isn't content to even give them that kind of legitimacy. Uh, He refers to them as uh, 
one scholar I was reading refers to them as fecal deities, or I guess you could say bathroom gods. And the, the intensity of God's scorn against these folks, or the, not these folks, these, these false gods, is fully seen even by the way he has Ezekiel refer to them. And this isn't the first time that Ezekiel has referred to the false gods as, as fecal deities or, or bathroom gods. Does that make sense, Pastor Apple? It does. There's there's not much more a derisive term that the Lord could have chosen when he calls these detestable things, these idols, by this name. It's it's one of the one of the worst Hebrew words he could have chosen, and it does show his absolute scorn and shows the absolute uselessness of these idols. So if I can kind of summarize what what you've said in terms of what's the thing that the Lord did for his people there in Egypt, he chose them. And I want to come back to that, but just for the sake of summarize, let's go go through it. He chose them. He said, I'm going to bring you out and leave those worthless gods behind because I'm going to be your God now. You don't need those worthless bathroom gods. You are mine now. I'm going to be your God. So he makes these beautiful promises. One thing I, I did want to just address briefly, you know, he said, well, why, why does the Lord choose Israel? And and I suppose there's, there's never really... A, a very satisfying answer given other other than it's because of who the lord is and it's because of his his grace and his mercy the answer is never found in in you or in me or in israel it's always found in the lord in his love in his faithfulness which is maybe not what we're thinking oh, that doesn't sound like a, a reasonable answer but it's the it's a great answer because it always calls us back to his grace and i think that's going to that's going to be a theme that's you know, in the background of this whole sermon from Ezekiel, one of my, just, just briefly, Pastor L, one of my favorite texts in this regard comes from Deuteronomy 7, where the, where the Lord tells his people, he says, you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And, and the text continues. But I, I love what it says there in verse seven. It says, it wasn't because you're a lot of people that the Lord loves you, but it's because the Lord loves you <laughs> and he's keeping the promise that he made. I mean, that whenever we talk about election and the Lord's choosing of Israel, or of you and me in Christ, it's never because of us. It's always because of who he is as a gracious, merciful, faithful God. Absolutely. And so the Lord picked Israel and the Lord picked you and me and his church. And it's not about you. It's not about how good you are or how much you deserve God's righteousness, because you don't, neither do I, neither do any of us. And we can see this list of charges that the Lord brings against Israel, they don't deserve his picking either, but they get it because he is loving and merciful and gracious to them, not because he has to be, but because that's who he is. And he picked them. And that is something to be celebrated. And this, this idea of election, God chose me is one of the most reassuring teachings of Scripture and of the Church, that uh, a Christian can say, God picked me because God loves me. 
I may not deserve his love. There may not be a good uh, reason that I can understand of why he loves me, but he does anyway. And that is really, really good news and brings us this comfort that it is all about God's patient, kind, and loving work for us. And we count on that, believing the promises he's given us. So the Lord makes this wonderful promise to his people there in Egypt. He reveals himself to them. He reveals their worthless gods and says, I'm going to be your God. Part two of the of each section, the abomination. What is the rebellion of the people of Israel in this in this part of the sermon? They turn up their nose. They rebel. And this is where you hear that cycle. But they rebelled against me. And then he goes on. And they were not willing to listen to me. God goes on to say, they didn't cast away the detestable things or forsake those those bathroom gods of Egypt. And you can almost hear the derision as he refers to the, the fecal deities that way. You guys chose that over me. Seriously? How could you do such a thing? I gave you such a promise and you turned up your nose at it and wanted to go your own way, even though your own way is is completely and totally useless and destructive. And so the Lord's recourse is that he said he was going to pour out his wrath on them and send his anger against them while they were there in Egypt. And we see some of that in the 10 plagues, when those plagues that attacked the gods of the Egyptians, showing that they were impotent and without power, and how God continued at first to show everybody, both the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, that they were all suffering under his hand. And then it came to the point where the people of Israel were exempt from the suffering in the later plagues. And then eventually the people of Egypt sent the people of Israel out because of the work of the Lord, the God of Israel, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Um, this this part of Ezekiel's sermon, Pastor Ill, it, it I think it, it it's a helpful thing to include when, when we think about Israel's time in Egypt in those first what, 10, 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, that in addition to the very big problem of being slaves in Egypt, there is a problem, a more inward problem for the people of Israel, and it's this idolatry that has apparently affected them. And you might not catch that in the book of Exodus, although when you put Ezekiel 20 side by side with it, I think you see it. And the way that you were talking about the plagues there, I think is is a reminder that there was always this temptation for the people of Israel to think that the gods of Egypt were in charge. And apparently some of them fell into that idolatry pretty hard if, if, based on the way Ezekiel preaches here. You know, and I mean, think about when, when the Lord does make that separation between the plague hitting only Egypt, and not the land of Israel. I can't remember which one it is now, but there's a, there's at least one, maybe there's a couple where the Lord warns the Egyptians ahead of time. And, and says, look, if you want your livestock to survive this hail, I think that's the one I'm thinking of, get them under, under the, the barns before the hail comes. And, and there are Egyptians who do because they've come to recognize that the Lord really is God, that Yahweh really is God, and their false gods aren't. And I guess it's not hard to imagine an Israelite who's been deluded by these fecal deities thinking, oh, there's not going to be any hail. And and potentially, you know, somebody, one of those Israelite slaves in the Egyptian household telling the Egyptian, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. 
because they would have fallen for the idolatry too. I guess it, it's just a, it's a, a side of the book of Exodus that I think is, is a helpful reminder that what's happening there in Exodus isn't just about God doing really cool stuff, but it is about showing that he is the only true God in the face of any idol. Exactly. And as he reveals his glory, he doesn't want his glory to be usurped or replaced by anyone else. And he doesn't even want to wipe out his own glory himself. So he doesn't bring the fullness of his wrath against the people of Israel. Instead, he, he holds his hand back from them, even though they are idolaters, and even though they rebelled against him, he still led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them out into the wilderness. He gave his name to them again, and he starts this cycle over again, uh, saying, we did this once. I gave you a promise. You rebelled. You did your thing. I was angry. I was going to spend my anger against you, but for the glory of my name, I didn't, I didn't want my name to be profaned among the Egyptians. And so I held off. And we will see that cycle a couple more times in our study of this sermon today. And then again, uh, it'll come up in tomorrow's study too. And we'll pick up more of that cycle in this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking the first part of Ezekiel 20 with Pastor Peter Ill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 12th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 1 to 26 with Pastor Peter Ill. He is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we've looked at verses 1 through 9. We've seen the first part of this sermon that Ezekiel preaches, the cycle that happens in the land of Egypt, how the Lord made his promise, the people rebelled, he was ready to spend his anger in his wrath, but he spared them for the sake of his name. Now that cycle is going to repeat in the wilderness, and we're going to pick that up, or excuse me, yeah, in the first generation of the wilderness, picking it up now in verse 10 of the text. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. 
Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. That's the next part of Ezekiel's sermon. That's verses 10 through 17 of chapter 20. So, Pastor L, the cycle starts over. What is the good thing? What's the promise that the Lord does at the beginning of this section? So the good thing and the promise is he brings them out to Mount Sinai and gives them his statutes and his rules or his law. Uh, but when we hear this, we think of law as an obligation. The word that he uses here is the word Torah. And some make the argument, and I, I really am really think that they're onto something, that they would like to translate that as, I gave them my word, thinking of the word of God, even as that ends up being fulfilled in Christ, as John makes clear in the Gospel of John. Uh, this idea that God revealed to them his statutes and his laws, not as a have to, but, hey, you're my people. I've called you my own. This is what it looks like to be the people of... And then it went on to, uh, he talks about if a person does them, his rules or his statutes, his word, he shall live. But then he says, and I gave them my Sabbaths too. These Sabbaths, the weekly remembrance of God's rest, uh, God says are a sign between them. And at the end of verse 12, he is even clear enough to say that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Well, we know the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But here it teaches us that it is the Lord who makes us holy, and that weekly Sabbath is a reminder of that. Throughout the Old Testament, Sabbath means Saturday, or it falls on Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday, and the seventh day of the week then would be Saturday. But as Christians today, we don't observe the Sabbath on Saturday, but we observe the holiness that we receive from God on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the day that we see our holiness alive again, coming to us that in him we live, fulfilling these very words. It is in this Sabbath that we continue to live, having this time of holiness that we receive from Christ as our remembrance and our reminder that it is God who has sanctified us and made us holy. Not the work of ourselves because we're so good at Sundays, but rather that it is Jesus who has done this for us. But even there, oh, go ahead, Pastor Apple. Well, I was just going to say, I I was thinking about this in preparation for our conversation about, you know, why does he single out the Sabbaths of all the, the statutes and things that he made known to them at Mount Sinai? Why is it the Sabbaths receiving special attention? And I think it's, it is this phrase that you're pointing out here in verse 12, where he says, I'm the Lord who sanctifies them. That stands in greatest contrast to these fecal deities who would, that's how the people of Israel would defile themselves is through these fecal deities. And so now at Mount Sinai, it's again, a call away from that idolatry to the Lord as the true God. And he's the one that's going to make you holy. Your idolatry is only going to defile you, but the Lord has this gift for you. It's the Sabbath. And as you keep that Sabbath day, he's going to make you holy. So, I mean, I think that contrast there is maybe the reason why the Lord singles out the Sabbath day here particularly. And that theme is going to carry on in verse 13, when he says that my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. So on the one hand, in verse 12, you have the Sabbath, where 
you remember that it is God who sanctifies you. And if you don't honor the Sabbath, you have profaned not just the Sabbath itself, but you have profaned God, saying, you know, the day of rest that God has given me and the holiness that God has given to his people, meh, what's that all about? No big deal. And so they profane the Sabbaths and their relationship with God when they ignore the Sabbaths. But that wasn't so good enough. That that takes oh. us into yeah, that I think that takes us into the second part then, the way that the people break this promise, the way they profane what the Lord gives. Help us into the that next part of the cycle. Sure. So in verse 13, it says, once again, those, the house of Israel rebelled against me. And so you see these, these key words in this cycle, those words of rebellion coming back. They didn't walk in the statutes and they rejected the rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profane. In other words, everything the Lord God had given them, they didn't do. And it's not just that God said, do this because uh, that way you can earn your salvation, but it was rather here. This is what it means to be my people. And they basically said, we don't want to. We don't want your commands. We don't want your expectations. We don't want your Sabbaths. We don't need your holiness. They wanted to go do things their own way, once again, putting God in their box of how they wanted it themselves to be and to live, and once again, earning nothing but God's anger and his wrath. Are there any particular incidents that stand out? I mean, in my mind, the golden calf incident jumps out pretty clearly as an example of this. Is there anything else that, that could be in view? The golden calf, I think, is one of the clearest. But they continue to, throughout this time, grumble against God um, regarding the manna and the quail and the wilderness, continuing even to say, hey, hey, we had it pretty good in Egypt. Send us back there. You just brought us out here to, to die. The times when uh, some of the sons of Aaron wanted to come bring incense that God hadn't called for. This would be uh, Nadab and Abihu trying to do the temple worship their own way. And they were killed, struck down by God for it. You could talk about the uh, Korahites who the ground swallowed up because they wanted to do things their own way, um, making trying once again to make an idol out of the Lord, saying, well, the way you told us to worship you, yeah, we have another idea. Let's try it this way. And the Lord had no regard for that to the point where they were destroyed. Pastor Ilden, the, the sermon, this section of the sermon continues into the next sections. The Lord's ready to pour out his wrath again, but he withholds his wrath, at least in its fullness, again for the sake of his name. What's there in those, oh, last about verses, end of 13 through 7? So for the sake of his name again, that key phrase, he doesn't want to profane his name among the nations, especially among the, the Amorites. And so... He does punish them, and they experience his wrath, but they don't get the fullness of it. Several times, the Lord said that he was going to destroy his people, but he didn't destroy them. But he did say, 
all of you, this first generation coming out of Egypt, the generation that passed by Mount Sinai and rebelled against my words, you aren't going into the promised land, that most glorious of all lands. No, you rejected my rules, didn't walk in my statutes, you profaned my Sabbaths, and you went after your idols. So, um, I will spare you full destruction, but you yourselves will not enter the promised land. And so they experience God's wrath, but not not as fully as they may have deserved to receive it. They deserved nothing but enmity with God and total destruction. But God held his hand back from them so his name wouldn't be profaned and cheapened among the nations. Because the Lord is faithful, not because the people of Israel are so big or not because the people of Israel are so good, but because he is the one who is protecting and establishing his name. Because that is his nature. Right. And I mean, this this matter of the Lord is doing it for the sake of his name, I, you, could, you could think of that, you know, for the sake of his promise. What, what, has he, what has he promised in his name throughout the history of the Old Testament? And that, I mean, that takes you certainly to the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, that, that it was through this family that he was going to bring blessing into the world. It takes you all the way back to the promise he made to Adam and Eve in the garden, that the, the offspring of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. And so for the sake of his name, because of who he is, he's not going to break that promise. It's not because the people have earned it. It's because of who he is as a gracious, faithful, merciful God. The people do benefit from it, and certainly you and I benefit from it greatly, that the Lord has been faithful to his promise and continues to be merciful and gracious to us even in our sin. But again, it is for the sake of his name, that emphasis on the Lord's grace. I mean, this that's one of the things that you see. Although it, it's a sermon of great judgment at this point, when he does turn to the restoration that we'll pick up in tomorrow's text, it again, this foundation that's being laid, salvation comes, the good things, the promises of the Lord come only because of who he is as a gracious, faithful God and not anything in Israel or in us. Anything to, to add on the sermon thus far before we take it to the, the end that we get today? No, I don't think so. All right. So you've taken us now, Pastor Earl, you mentioned that next generation, the, the first generation in the wilderness is not going to go into the promised land. Now the sermon that Ezekiel is preaching is going to turn to that second generation there in the wilderness. We're picking up chapter 20, verse 18 through the end of our text for today. And I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules. 
but have rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. And their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up all their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. That was through verse 26 of chapter 20. That again is where our part of the sermon ends today. We'll pick up the rest of it in tomorrow's episode of Sharper Iron. So Pastor L, we meet that same cycle again. This time we're talking to the second generation, the children in the wilderness, the ones who would get to go into the promised land. Again, what's the the promise? What's the blessing that the Lord gives at the beginning of this cycle? The promise, once again, goes back to, let's do this again. Your fathers disobeyed my rules and my statutes and my Sabbaths. So in verse 19, he continues, I am the Lord your God. Walk in your statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy. And so this is definitely the call that God is continuing to be with his people and that he continues to want to be their God. Uh It is the same promise he gave to their fathers. Even though their fathers didn't keep it, he is giving the same promise to them again. But once again, the children rebelled against him. They didn't walk in their statutes. They didn't obey his rules. They didn't live. They profaned the Sabbaths. And so what you saw once, you see again. The Lord gives the same promise, and these children fall away but they come up with new and i would say exciting but but even more tragic really ways of living under the lord there and they were completely given over to their idolatry what what strikes me about the the lord's promise that he makes to the the second generation is as you said it's almost almost the exact same thing he said to their fathers except i mean it's it's striking that you know he says i'm the lord your god Walk in my statutes. Where, where is it? Sorry, it was before that. Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols, which is in the very first cycle, you know, it was the idols of Egypt that were warned against, but now it's the idols of your fathers. I mean, isn't that a, that's just a terribly tragic thing, how the fathers had failed to heed the Lord's warning, and now they stand as the warning for the children. And then, as you're already pointing out for us, the tragedy is compounded by the fact that these children, this second generation in the wilderness, don't learn from that warning of the fathers. Instead of forsaking the idols of their fathers, they're going to hold on to those idols and even add to the idolatry. So how do the how, how does, as this text continues, Pastor Real, how do the children, I mean, how do we see this idolatry just start to grow, these abominations? That was the way Ezekiel started this sermon. How, how have they built up to this point? So they start to adapt, uh, to adopt, sorry, the practices of the gods around them, including the worship of the god Moloch. We hear a lot about Baal and Asherah, and we should. It, those were gods throughout the land of Canaan and around the land of Canaan. And worship of those idols certainly began during this time of that second uh generation outside of Egypt. But also, this worship of Molech involved the offering of firstborn children to this god. And 
and as they would offer their children as sacrifices to these false gods, you can even think back again to the, the idea of fecal deities. Now they're giving up life because they're not following the rules and statutes that would give them life that had been given them by the Lord. But this is where verses 25 and 26 are, are really difficult for us. Uh, when the Lord says, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life, I defiled them through the very gifts in offering up their firstborn that I may devastate them. This makes the hair of Christians stand on end. How can this be that it is the Lord who gives them impossible, terrible rules, rules in which they can't live, rules in which they are defiled and devastated? The Lord sends his, his wrath and even signs them over to destruction at the hands, at his hand, as they worship their idols for their sin and their sinfulness. Their idolatry, God can have nothing to do with. And as a call to repentance, he gives them devastation. We don't like to talk this way or to think this way, that God would cause suffering, that God would even cause his own people whom he chose to be devastated. But that's exactly what he does. They wanted to set their eyes on their father's idols. They wanted to even raise that idolatry up a level. And they did. And God, to show them that he is the Lord their God, is the one who brought them devastation, bringing them low so that he can continue to speak to them his word of comfort and promise, that he is the Lord who lowers the proud, who lowers the one who tries to come to him and say, this is how it ought to be, and raises up the humble and the repentant. Those two verses that conclude our text for today, 25 and 26, are striking, to say the least, to us as Christians. Troubling, I think, is the way you you phrased it. And yet, I think it's, you know, within the context, notice that those verses about the Lord sending this devastation upon his people come after he resolves to withhold his hand. They come after he, he holds himself back for the sake of his name such that even this this devastation that he sends, this giving his own people over to their idols, they've shown that's what they've wanted, so he lets them have it their way, and he gives them the judgment they deserve because of this idolatry that they've chosen for themselves. Even, even that, it, I mean, it, and that ties in with that very last phrase of our text, this devastation that the Lord sends upon his people is done for the purpose of calling them back to repentance. He wants them to know that he is the Lord, which certainly has a ring of judgment to it. You know, you you will know that I'm the Lord, that I'm the, the true God. These fecal deities have no power, they're worthless, and they can't save you from my wrath that I'm pouring out. But but there's also that that gospel to that. To know that he's the Lord means that, yes, he is all-powerful, and that means he's also all-powerful to save he, he would have us recall his promises that, you know, the reason he's been holding his hand back this whole time for the sake of his name. So as, you know, as, as surprising, shocking as those last two verses are, I think if we, if we don't let them have their, their full effect of the law upon us, you know, that condemnation, then we miss the, the full sweetness of, of the gospel and the full reality of what it means to know that the Lord, that Yahweh is the only true God. Exactly. 
And any attempt that we would make to make to try to take God off the hook or to to lessen God's severity would be us trying to say, no, 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 you can't be a God who devastates. You can't be a God who brings suffering. You can't be a God who treats your people that way. But who exactly do we think that we are to tell God what kind of God he can or can't be? That idea of trying to get God off the hook when he says, I'm the devastator because I needed to bring my people low. So he did. And that leaves us thinking, wow, that is not what we were expecting at all. And that is a a troubling thing for us because God doesn't play by our rules. But thanks be to God, he doesn't play by our rules because he's not only the devastator, but he's also the deliverer. And over the course of time, he sent his son to come be his word in the flesh, to be God with us. No longer were his people scattered No longer were they in exile. No longer were they prohibited from his promised land. No longer were they prohibited. No longer were they uh, simply consigned to suffer even as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. No, now his people have the promise that we are being taken to a to the great and glorious land flowing with milk and honey. And he doesn't mean Canaan. He's referring to the resurrection, the place that he has prepared for his church now and forever as we continue to live in his name, because it is not profaned. It is not made dirty or less or cheaper. No, the name of the Lord our God is to be praised, and the name of the Lord our God is Jesus Christ, and it is in him, by him, and through him that we have salvation. That promise has never gone away, and that promise will never go away, even as the Lord lowers the proud and raises up the humble. And he calls you today to repent and to believe in that holy name of Jesus, because it is there that you are saved. Pastor Peter Ill is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 1 to 26. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. Always good to get to be with you, Pastor Apple. Blessings to you and our listeners today. God has put you into the name of Jesus. Through him, you inquire of the Lord, not presuming upon him, not demanding the answer that you want, but in true humility, in repentance over your sins, recognizing the abominations, the sins of your own life, and in repentance, trusting not in your own ability, but in the name of the Lord Jesus, written upon you in holy baptism. In that name, God keeps his promises to you to bring you to that eternal land in the resurrection on the last day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.